Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 112th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. As you know, our teens are under a lot more pressure than ever before. Because of stress, our teens are having tension headaches. And though stress doesn't cause migraines, it can trigger one. Today, I've invited a special guest. This is a really informative interview for me. Here's some things that I didn't know that over 10% of our teens are suffering from migraines. The symptoms in teens look different than they do in adults. Migraines often appear during puberty. If migraines are treated early, you can avoid serious migraines in your adulthood. We're also going to talk about how you know if your teen is having a tension headache or a migraine. Dr. Alex, MD, is a founder and the president of the Synergy Integrative Headache Center in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Alex is board certified in headache medicine by the United Council of Neurological Subspecialties and is a diplomat of the American Board of Pain Medicine. He is also board certified in internal medicine by the American Board of Internal Medicine. Dr. Alex has received a PhD in the field of neurology at the Moscow Medical Academy, completed a fellowship in pain management at the Cleveland Clinic, and is currently serving as a president of the American Interventional Headache Society. So welcome, Dr. Alex. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here, and thank you for having me. Yes, yes, I really appreciate your time. So we're going to talk about teens and migraines. So first of all, how common is it for teens to get migraines? It is actually very common. Um, It has been estimated that approximately 10% of adolescents or teenagers experience migraine headaches on a regular basis. In general, migraine can impact patients uh, at different ages. So for example, in my experience, one of my younger patients was five years old and he actually recalls himself experiencing headache when he was three and his parents confirmed that. And my oldest patient, I think right now is 93. But usually, typically, migraine tends to start during teenage years. In boys, it tends to start a little bit at a younger age, like five, seven, 10 years of age in girls during that puberty or during uh, when they start uh, having menstrual cycle. But this is very common. This is the time when most of the migraine history starts. Oh, I I did not know that. So I know teens are under a lot of stress and I know there are a lot of headaches caused by tension. Uh, I mean, does stress cause migraines or what's the difference between tension headaches and migraines? This is actually a great question. So If we look into overall prevalence of headaches, the most common, statistically, the most common type of headache disorder is tension-type headache or stress-induced headache, so to speak. It has been estimated that probably 50% of population experience tension headaches. Migraine is the second most common headache disorder, but it's by far the most common headache disorder that we see in clinical practice because migraine, they're significantly more disabling. 
And that's probably be the, one of the key differentiators, if you will, between tension headaches or stress headaches and migraine headaches. So migraine, definitely much more disabling headache disorder. Patients simply cannot function. They cannot live their normal life while experiencing migraine headaches. It's, uh, it's completely changing patients' quality of life on so many levels. And stress in that sense can bring on a migraine attack. It can trigger one. It would not be per se the all cause, all inclusive cause of migraine, but it's something that could actually set patients onto this migraine path. Something that would bring on a specific migraine attack. So if a patient happens to live, let's say, I'm not sure if that's even possible, but if somebody would happen to live a stretch of time with no stress whatsoever, stress-free life, like ideal uh, case scenario, would that person be migraine-free? Probably not. They probably would experience headaches maybe less frequently, but nonetheless, they would continue. So that's probably the connection between the stress and the migraine. Stress is a major trigger, very common trigger, clearly. But yeah. in general, tension headaches certainly should not be equalized. We should not put this equation mark between tension headache and migraine just because it's a completely different headache disorders with completely different outlook, with completely different impact on patient's life. Yeah. So what causes migraines? So in general, um, that's what a lot of patients definitely once uh, would like to know and learn more about is that we believe that migraine has a very strong genetic component. We see migraine uh, headaches tends to run in families. And I always ask all of my, especially new patients, when we discuss their migraine history, I always ask them, do you have anybody else in your family who is experiencing migraine headaches? Parents, grandparents, siblings, children. And I would probably say eight or nine times out of 10, patients would say, yes, my mom, for example, used to get migraine headaches or my grandparents. There are a few patients who um, would say that they don't have any positive family history, uh, but then they may go um, forward and say, well, my mom used to get sinus headaches, but never a migraine. So in my mind, and essentially in the mind of all headache specialists, sinus headaches is like a buzzword for misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed migraine. And that's unfortunately what we see very frequently. So to answer your question, there's a genetic predisposition that makes patients susceptible perhaps neurologically to certain triggers, whether those triggers could be environmental, it could be stress, it could be internal triggers such as hormonal changes, let's say during the menstrual cycle and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. And genetically, some of these patients are very sensitive to those triggers. And whenever they come in contact with that trigger, it sends certain signals within the central nervous system um, to produce certain chemical changes. And we notice decrease or increase in concentrations or release of certain neurotransmitters, neuropeptide, those are the natural chemicals that are synthesized and developed in the brain. So we start noticing imbalance of those chemicals. And that imbalance essentially leads to changes in the blood vessels. It leads to changes in the central and peripheral nervous system, making patients sensitive to things, for example, to bright lights and loud sounds, makes, uh, making patients feel nauseous. So all of those migraine symptoms that we see frequently, essentially they result from this very complex rather chemical imbalance that's taking place within the nervous system. Mm -hmm. I have seen this up close and personal with one of my clients and I started seeing her when she was probably a sophomore, junior in high school. Oh, wow. And she's very active in cheerleading and made great grades. But what I noticed, these migraines were so crippling that it, she would miss a week of school often. Yeah. 
and it and she never know she never knew when it would come back and hit her so it definitely caused a lot of mental health issues like she became really depressed and became really anxious so one of my questions i have is i mean there were for sure a lot of psychosocial reasons why she got depressed or anxious but can migraines also uh just in a biological way increase anxiety and depression i think it can and i think it actually does and it's it's i don't think it's the kind of one-way street here either i think it's this connection this correlation is um, multimodal so we do know that certain neurotransmitters and neuropeptides that are involved in migraine are also involved in the pathogenesis of depression and anxiety for instance serotonin it's the, mm -hmm. just to name one of the biggest one i think that has been studied uh, over the years uh, we certainly see the imbalance, and due to that, I believe um, back in the middle of probably last century in 1950s, 1960s, that's when this um, assumption was that some of those, uh, not assumption, but sort of an ideas were up in the air in headache medicine field that maybe if we could use some of the antidepressants that were available back then and try to treat and target chronic uh, migraine headaches, we certainly never put an equation mark between chronic migraine and depression. It's a completely different story. And I hear that sometimes patients say, well, my doctor didn't think that I had a chronic migraine. He just felt I'm just depressed. Well, you know, one doesn't exclude another. And frequently patients with chronic migraine will feel depressed as well. But you, you don't want to explain migraine by simply because patient is depressed. It's just not true. And this is incorrect and wrong to begin with. But anyway, there's some common pathophysiological mechanisms to a degree. Um, that sort of uh, underlie both of these conditions. And that led us to believe that certain antidepressants might be beneficial to treat patients with uh, chronic migraines, regardless whether they have clinically you know, obvious or um, any cl clinical evidence of depression or anxiety. So back in the day, back in the uh, 1950s and 60s and 70s, uh, some of the first antidepressants that uh, we were using that, were, that became available um, were tricyclic antidepressants. They were not very selective. They were kind of rather broad and they would affect serotonin level as well as many other things. And it was noted that, yes, this type of this class of medications can be beneficial for patients with chronic migraine. And now we certainly use the same medications frequently to treat other chronic pain conditions, whether we're talking about fibromyalgia, chronic neck pain, chronic back pain. Some of those conditions respond quite well to uh, the use of antidepressants. So there are certainly those are common grounds. Oh, that's interesting. So what are some common symptoms of migraines in teens? And does it differ from migraine symptoms for adults? And what are the different migraine types? So um, migraine uh, is, it, it can occur and can present itself somewhat different, uh, differently in teens than compared, let's say, to migraine in adult patients. So as I mentioned earlier, migraine uh, as a condition tends to start at a younger age. So it's usually, again, teenage years or in boys sometimes even younger than this. And usually in those uh, early ages, migraine may not necessarily present as what we would normally expect from migraine to be. It's you know unilateral, one-sided, throbbing, pounding headache. We don't always see that in uh, uh, pediatric population of patients or even adolescents. So in um, these younger patients, migraine typically present as the pain located more in the forehead, bilaterally affecting both sides at the same time. Um, it uh, would be very, very typical presentation for that matter, or it could be just at the top of the head, or frequently patient would say, my whole head hurts. It's not particularly lateralized to one side or the other as we typically see and frequently see in adult patients. 
Uh, younger patients may not necessarily describe their migraine headaches as throbbing or pounding headache. Sometimes they do, but frequently they just say it's just aching, it's just hurting. So the pain descriptions may actually vary dramatically. And I think that in younger patients, the, the way to describe their headache may be very nonspecific. It could just be a headache, literally. Um, but in addition to that, patients would frequently also present with sensitivity to sound, sensitivity to bright lights. Sometimes they might feel nauseous. They even may have vomiting, depending how severe that headache would be. Uh, and uh, another important thing is that um, we frequently observe how patients behave, how their behavior and their mood changes during the migraine attack. As many patients with migraine, they sort of start to slow things down. Even kids who are usually have very good, actually, pain tolerance. And uh, I'm not sure if they have excellent pain coping skills, but by looking at their behavior, certainly sometimes makes me wonder that, gosh, you know, that, that, uh, that kid is really struggling with a headache and yet they're able to do things and uh, enjoy other things. As adult patients, typically you want to be in a dark, quiet room and kind of avoid any communication. We don't always see that extreme in kids, but still you can always say that yes, their energy level is down. They, they, they don't play with their peers. They don't want to watch TV. They don't want to watch sometimes or play video games. They just want to kind of um, uh, be left alone and, and relax. So we see those changes as well. So I think that when you make a migraine diagnosis in, uh, especially in younger patients and teens, it's important not just to go through this list of check marks. Do you have throbbing pain? Is it unilateral? Does it last four to 72 hours? But you want to look at the whole presentation. And that whole presentation gives you a better flavor, whether this is a migraine headache, as opposed to, uh, let's say maybe tension headache or some other headache disorders. As far as types of migraine, well, there are typically two major classes based on the clinical presentation. There is migraine without aura, um, you know, meaning that patients don't experience any additional neurological symptoms before the migraine. And then there's a, what we used to call a classical migraine or migraine with aura, when some of the patients would experience or would see flashing lights, squiggly lines or zigzag lines in their, uh, in their, in their vision or notice distortion to their vision field for maybe 20, 30 minutes. And then those vision changes disappear and the full headache comes on and they experience a full-blown migraine attack. So this is so-called the migraine with aura. And aura, it's an interesting phenomenon that has been described in literature quite well. And it's a very bright uh, symptom uh, and one of the phases of migraine. And what, what's interesting, many patients, obviously they're aware of that. And whenever they come for a visit, they frequently question the diagnosis saying, well, Dr. Alex, you think that I have migraine, but I have never experienced an aura. How come do I have migraine? And I've never experienced that particular phenomenon. And I usually tell them that although it's a very bright and interesting phenomenon, it actually affects only maybe 27, maybe 30% of all patients with migraine, meaning that 70% mm. of migraineurs will never experience or in their life. So mm. it's a bright phenomenon, but it's not very common. So those are the two major classes of migraine. And also, depending on how frequent migraine headaches are, you can also classify them into an episodic form, uh, which occurs, let's say, a couple times a month. And a chronic form, it's the headache that tends to occur on 15 days per month or more. Mm. So those are the two biggest, I think, uh, kind of um, uh, largest and most um, challenging groups of patients that we're, you know, that we're seeing in, uh, in our practices, the chronic migraines. Definitely very challenging to treat, very challenging to diagnose sometimes. Mm. Wow. So in teens, should parents keep an eye out for behavior changes that might indicate a migraine? I think so. Um, Especially, I would say that that might become more obvious and more of an issue uh, the more frequent the migraines become. 
So if person uh, experiencing migraine maybe once every other month, few times a year, I personally would not expect for that person's behavior to change. But with increasing frequency of migraine, because migraine are extremely disabling. And also if you, if you can pair that with unfortunately significant amount of lack of understanding of migraine by their peers, by healthcare providers, even sometimes by their parents, when they feel like, well, you're just lazy or you know, something else happened, you're just uh, frustrated, you're just, you know, something else going on and migraine is just your excuse uh, not to participate, not to do certain things. Uh, a lot of teens definitely would feel depressed, would feel down, would feel misunderstood. Um, because again, this is not something that you can come up easily. It's a very, very disabling condition. And the more frequent those attacks are, we see that many uh, teens, they start developing this almost like anticipation anxiety when they start right. changing their kind of strategy, basically. They stop planning things ahead of time for, for far long because they always have a question in their head. Can I plan, can I go, let's say, to, uh, to a concert or can I meet with my friend after school, for example? What if I have a migraine? What am I supposed to do then? And that, I think, starts to affect, uh, you know, teens' behavior more uh, than probably anything else. And that's something that sometimes could be seen definitely. Yeah, that's totally what I saw with my own client because she didn't even think she could go to college. It's just a lot of fear, a lot of fear. So why would drug treatments not be a first-line approach for teen migraine? Well, you know, the drug therapy, it can be a first-line treatment approach for, for teens, but whenever we evaluate, uh, at least in, in my in my clinical center, whenever I see patients, um, you know, teenagers with, let's say, episodic or frequent or chronic migraine, I kind of look at the whole presentation, the whole person, and try to understand what are the factors that might be driving the migraine frequency. Uh, as I said, the cause of the migraine is genetic, so I can't really change the genetic component to it. But I do believe that there are so many factors, so many treatment options available to us now that could help us change the frequency of the headaches, improve patient's quality of life, uh, decrease you know, the migraine-associated disability. So we have those options, and there's quite a few of them. There are pharmacological, which are very effective when we actually have a, a number of very effective, very safe uh, you know, medication options for our patients. And then there's a non-pharmacological options that in my opinion are, could be as important as pharmacotherapy and as effective sometimes. So if a person comes in for the evaluation and they have never tried any, what we consider a therapeutic, like true real therapeutic options to address their headaches, I certainly prefer to start with something benign, something natural or holistic, uh, if you will. We, we start looking into patient's lifestyle to see if there's anything else about lifestyle that could be changed if we believe that certain factors might be influencing headache frequency. For example, irregular sleep or skipping meals, or not being hydrated adequately on a day-to-day -day basis. Things that uh, perhaps teens are preferred to eat or drink, those kind of things, they, they, they do matter. And if we don't look into those factors, if we ignore those lifestyle changes, I personally feel like we're not gonna be accomplishing significant results with our pharmacotherapy anyway. So we need to kind of start at the bottom, start at the base, and kind of build our therapy based on that. And then obviously with, um, you know, uh, with teens, they have their whole life in front of them. If they've never tried any medications, never been treated specifically for migraine condition, I do think it might be best to start with a non-pharmacological options just because they don't have a lot of side effects most of the time. Not all non-pharmacological options are safe per se, but majority of them are. They're pretty simplistic. They're cheap. They're affordable. They're effective. And I think that's usually my starting conversation. 
But again, one patient is different for another and uh, different from another, and there is no uh, one size fits all type of approach in headache medicine or in anything for that matter in medicine. So I typically, if I have a patient who I believe is very disabled by frequent migraines, I mean, not necessarily say that we're going to do, let's say, herbal supplements or lifestyle modifications only to start with. I would feel that, well, maybe in that particular case, we do need to be a little bit more aggressive and we need to jump ahead. I would still cover all of those lifestyle modification options. I would still go into details about the other thing that could be done non-pharmacologically, but I might maybe suggest patient to start a pharmacotherapy at that point. So it really depends on the clinical situation. Okay. So does a holistic approach is changing lifestyle and herbal supplements? Is that what you're talking about? Right. It's a changing lifestyle. We typically recommend patients to follow um, certain type of diets. Like one of the most common diet we recommend, it's called low tyramine diet. And tyramine is natural. It's basically, it's a product of certain proteins, fermentation or metabolism. It's, it's naturally occurring chemical, if you will, in, in the certain foods and products and beverages. And whenever patient with uh, pre-existing migraine headache, if uh, that person would eat certain product with a high tyramine content, that puts them at risk of experiencing a headache. And that's tyramine has been shown to be a fairly common trigger. Um, in some, um, you know, in some studies, it was noted that 20 to 24 percent of patients might be sensitive to tyramine. Not sensitive in terms of allergic reactions or intolerances, but sensitive in terms of experiencing a headache whenever they eat something with the high tyramine content. Hmm. Um, then, yes, we, we talk about the sleep schedule, uh, and I always tell my uh, patients that it's not only how many hours you sleep per night that's important, but also how regular and the timing of those eight hours. So this is really, really important. We talk about not skipping meals. We make sure that uh, patients uh, eat regularly. It's very important. We make sure that patients are hydrated, especially you know during the summer months, it's real, or those physically active uh, teens who are participating in different sports. It's absolutely important to stay hydrated throughout the day. Um, so those kind of things are really, really important. And then there's certain supplements and herbal supplements and vitamins and minerals that could be also very beneficial. Um, uh, things like you know vitamin B2, for example, or magnesium supplements, coenzyme Q10, fever fuel. There are quite a few things that could be tried. They're not ideal uh, for every patient and they may not fit every patient, but those are the great options that we have. And uh, certainly for somebody with maybe several migraine attacks per month, that might as well be a good point to start before starting them on uh, pharmacotherapy. Yeah. What I, I would imagine nicotine is not helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not helpful. It's not helpful for anything. For <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and we always, we, we discuss those, uh, those issues and things with our teen uh, patients and just with all of our patients as well. And it's not only just the nicotine, it's, I also believe that vaping and things of that nature, we should also be quite careful about those things and be aware of that. Right. What are some school-friendly options that teens have for controlling and treating migraines? So uh, first of all, again, I recommend making sure that um, teens, as far as the just overall environment, again, making sure they have enough sleep, making sure that they don't skip breakfast before they go to school, making sure that they have access to snacks or meals or certain hydration during the school. That's really important. So I feel that if you can avoid some of those potential triggers for the patient naturally, log logically, it would bring down headache frequency. It may not eliminate all headaches, but uh, teens would not experience as many headaches. Considering, um, you know, 
rigors of academical life and how stressful our teen's life can be um, with sports activities, academic activities in school and so on and so forth, uh, it's absolutely important for them to uh, utilize effective stress coping skills as well. So it's not just about hydration per se and sleep, which are great stress coping skills, just natural, especially the sleep uh, adequacy, but also things like, you know, meditation. There's a lot of different apps available now that are very uh, easy to use. There are YouTube videos that teens could actually download or just watch. And if they never meditated before, I think uh, trying something with the guided meditations was just a couple of minutes per day spending time. And I think those things are extremely, extremely important. Sometimes we recommend uh, teens to exercise biofeedback exercise or practice biofeedback exercises, which is sort of like a meditation, but not quite the same, but it's one of those non-pharmacological uh, skills that some of the teens could, uh, could learn and actually utilize them on a regular basis. Making sure also that they have an access to their rescue medication. This is very important. What I mean by that is that migraine is not just a headache. Migraine is a very complex condition, if you will. And migraine episode, migraine attack, does not kind of circle around the headache itself. There's actually the prodromal phase when you know, patient may experience irritability, insomnia, perhaps in some, uh, in some cases, neck pain, anxiety, decreased appetite, nausea. Some patients start noticing some sensitivity to light. They may not have a headache yet, but they already start experiencing the symptoms. And that could last sometimes for even a day or two or three before the actual migraine headache. Yeah. And then, you know, they, they start, whether they get this migraine aura, and then they start the actual headache episode itself. And that headache portion of the migraine could last four to 72 hours leading to a so-called the post-drum, which is patient may not necessarily, it's like a period of time that patients, during which patients recover from a migraine attack. They may not have a headache anymore at that time, but they still feel quite kind of disabled. They can't focus, they can't really concentrate, they can't feel that vital energy for them to really participate in any physical or cognitive ability. So this is kind of the, this whole thing. So when we talk about migraine treatment, it's really important for teens to have an access to their acute medications, the rescue medication, as soon as possible. And we typically recommend if a teen, let's say if a person starts experiencing a headache, we want them to introduce the medication, to start treating it within 40 to 60 minutes from the first symptoms of a migraine attack. It's really important to have this access. And obviously with schools, it might be challenging. So for our um, you know, school um, uh, patients, teenagers, we typically write them so-called the school letter or letter for school, explaining their situation kind of in a, a very simplistic words, and then asking teachers or the supervisors to allow them to carry their medications or have those medications available to them. And if the migraine attack starts, they may need to get excused from the class, go to the nursing room or nursing station, just take the medication. It's important also for those teens to have an access to a quiet, perhaps dark room. So because the medication might take sometimes 30 or 60 minutes to, to work. So it's important for the teen to be able to be in this comfortable, stable environment to allow the medication to work. And also it may sound like, well, that means that's, you know, he's going to be, or that, that person will be missing one hour of class being in a dark, quiet room. And that's true. But this is, we're talking about, missing one hour of class per day or the entire rest of the day if they don't treat the migraine. So that's something that's, that's also very, very important. So we typically write a letter for our school um, patients and just ask them to you know, bring it to their teacher or supervisor or attendants and just ask them, allow them to have that flexibility. 
Sometimes uh, we may write a letter for certain um, in certain situations, for example, if it's the very bright and loud environment for, for a team to take exams, even to take certain tests, we may write a recommendation letter to allow them to take a test in a, a more comfortable environment for them in terms of uh, trigger avoidance type of environment when they are not exposed to bright lights and loud no noises or strong smells, for example. So those things, they matter because... Uh, the kid might be as bright as anybody, but during the migraine attack, it's just that brightness could be, I wouldn't say it could be gone, but it would be very difficult for that teen to perform normally during the migraine attack or whenever he's exposed to all of those different triggers. Right, right. So what else can moms do to support their teen with migraines at home? Um, I think just really having a good conversation with our teen is really important about the headache frequency. It's important maybe to discuss um, whether anybody else in your families have experienced migraines before. And this is something that, you know, we, I think, frequently underestimate. For a person who is experiencing migraine, it's sometimes very reassuring, if you will, very comforting to know that there's somebody else that they know who is actually experiencing something similar to what they have. Because Many, many patients don't realize that other people understand what, what, what does it mean to experience a migraine headache. So to have this knowledge, I think is really important. To show your support is very important as well so that they understand that they are being understood, that they're being heard, that it's, it's a real thing. It's not in their head, that there's nothing wrong with them as far as you know, mentally or anything like this. That it's, 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 a, it's, it's a very legitimate, a very disabling condition and there's ways to cope with this, and I do think sometimes it does take the whole family to help and conquer this problem and, um, you know, encourage teens to, again, to stay on track with their lifestyle and, uh, you know, exercise regularly, making sure that they're going to bed at the same time, making sure that they're hydrated, making sure that they also eat healthy and uh, eat regularly as well, and avoiding those kind of processed uh, foods and products that can trigger migraine headaches as well. This is such helpful information. I really appreciate it. So why is it important to get diagnosis and start treatment early for migraines? Yeah, this is another great uh, question. Um, I think this is kind of the, 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 the large, the big untackled problem in healthcare in general. What we see more frequently than not in our clinical practice is that some patients come in and they come in because they can't tolerate the pain anymore, that they experience those chronic frequent headache attacks. And when we ask them, for how long have you been experiencing headaches so frequently, many of them say, well, it's been 10 or 15 years. Like mm -hmm. this morning I had a patient, uh, she's not a teenager, she's in her uh, late 50s, uh, but uh, she, she came here to see us for the first time and she has already by now, she has a 10 plus year history of experiencing headaches every single day. And unfortunately, many patients, when they start experiencing migraine headaches during their teenage years or even child, in childhood, Usually, more often than not, those headaches are not very frequent. They're sporadic, what we call, maybe once or twice a month, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. But at that point, it's important to recognize it, actually to call it the right thing. Call it not just a headache, but actually it's a migraine headache. And it's really important because we do have migraine-specific treatment options available to, today. And if we diagnose somebody with migraine, we should treat it like migraine. We should not be treating it as just generic headache disorder. We have great tools and we need to utilize them. And why is this important? Well, the earlier we recognize those headaches, the earlier, the earlier we diagnose them correctly, the earlier we can start that migraine-specific treatment. Studies have shown that if we're not treating migraine headaches with migraine-specific treatments, if we utilize non-specific, let's say, pain relievers or pain medications, 
the risk of that episodic migraine to progress and transform into a chronic migraine is significant. So by recognizing them early and treating them adequately, we actually might prevent this person from developing and progressing along those, you know, migraine, um, you know, phases and transforming into a chronic migraine down the road. So it's really important. But even in addition to that, just having a good, adequate, specific treatment options for our patients will improve this patient's quality of life dramatically. We know as a fact that non-specific treatment options, they tend not to work as well as specific options for migraine. There are patients who respond to over-the-counter medications, and this is great. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But more often than not, those type of treatments, they only take the edge off. They sometimes mask the pain, but they're not really providing a good uh, improvement in patient's quality of life. So the earlier we diagnose, the earlier we initiate the treatment, the better the patient's quality of life, the better the prognosis, the better the outcomes will be wish my client had you for her doctor for sure. Uh, so what, do you have any, we're winding up, about to wind up. So do you have any last advice for the moms listening? Yes, it's just um, certainly um, just recognize migraine as a pretty common and prevalent condition. We usually say that in teenagers, um, as I mentioned earlier, about 10% of teenagers experience uh, migraine headaches. In general, if you look at the population in the United States, it's about 13% of the United States population experience migrant headaches. So we're talking about 38, 39 million people in this country alone who experience migrant headaches on a regular basis. Wow. This is a very, it's a huge problem. And it's important mm. to recognize that it's not something that's unheard of. So it's important to accept the idea. It's important to recognize it. Uh, it's important to look in all of these lifestyle modifications, um, look into things that might be contributing to the headaches. I do think it's important to, at least in the beginning, to keep track of those headaches and keep a calendar so you can actually document and recording it. That is very helpful, not only to understand migraine frequency, but also sometimes it will help you to identify potential triggers. Yes, then, that makes um, sense. One other thing that I probably should have mentioned earlier, this is regarding the uh, non-pharmacological options. We do have a number of... Um, FDA cleared devices now. So we're, you know, teenagers are frequently, they're very forward looking. They're very comfortable with technology. So we have actually, finally, we have technological advances in migrant management. And we have now four officially FDA cleared devices that we could use to treat migrant headaches. At least two of them have been FDA cleared to use in teenagers. So hmm. one of them could be the vagus nerve stimulation. It's a handheld device, which is again, something that, um, Students could actually take uh, to school with them if that would be allowed by their school officials. And it's the non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation when they stimulate the neck with a very gentle electrical stimulation. And that stimulation captures and uh, affects vagus nerve that regulates migraine attack, both severity and frequency, depending on the patterns of use. There's another uh, device um, which is the stimulations like an armband that, that teens could apply in the upper arm like a sports band that is connected to their phone and they induce stimulation, uh, stimulating those peripheral nerves in the upper extremity. And that also helps to abort migraine attacks. And again, those are non-pharmacological options completely. They are FDA approved, they're proven. There's a, a huge amount of science behind those and actually they've been studied and researched and has shown to be very effective and very safe. And certainly again, when we're talking about integrative, holistic approach to migrant treatment, especially in younger patients, I think those are the tools that we need not to forget and actually utilize them in our treatment paradigm. That sounds really good, really good. 
So if I have a mom who has any questions, how could she contact you? So uh, anybody could contact uh, via our website. So our website is www.synergyheadache.com. Synergy like synergy. So, um, or they can just uh, Google my name and they can find my website uh, online. They can either email us, call us, um, uh, anybody who would like to come for an appointment, they could schedule uh, their appointment via either calling the clinic or just uh, uh, visiting us online and just booking an appointment online. They can also call us at our number, which is 773-948-7557. And we, I should also mention that we do offer in-person visits or telemedicine appointments. Usually for the new patients, for the new evaluations, I certainly prefer to see patients in person and we are open for in-person visits. But we have patients who come to see us or who uh, come for an evaluation uh, from out of state, from literally all over the country. So um, uh, certainly for those patients, we still offer telemedicine appointments, especially during COVID-19. We don't we want to limit the success of travel, certainly so. But both options are available. Okay. So the, for, for the moms who are listening, where are you located? We are located in Northfield, which is a little bit north of Chicago, so Chicago area. It's in Northfield, Illinois. Uh, and the address is 191 Waukegan Road, Suite 300, Northfield, Illinois, 60093. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been really helpful, and I'm sure the moms have loved this. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.